All right, welcome back to another episode of Fifth Generation Leadership. I got Adam Dorito with me. Uh, I'm going to link to a uh, kind of a riveting story of his kind of experience since being a Air Force cadet at the uh, Air Force Academy, talking to Dr. Sam Sigalov. Um, and I know, Adam, you've, you've done a lot of uh, uh, podcasting, you got your own podcast. So I'll let you introduce yourself, but we're not going to go a lot into the background because I wouldn't just talk about kind of what what character strengths you think that you have that have led you into being this uh, leader in a very unconventional way that I think is really needed in the current environment. So with that said as an intro, um, yeah, if you don't mind, just introduce yourself and uh, then we'll start asking you some questions. Sure. Well, thanks for bringing me on the show, Grant. I really appreciate it. Uh, so yeah, for your listeners, my name is Adam Dorito. I was a member of the class of 2010 from the Air Force Academy, went to the Marine Officer Canada School while I was there, playing on cross-commissioning, ended up in a giant legal tussle uh, over reporting sexual assault when I was there, and you guys can definitely check that out on my website or my podcast if you're interested in knowing that background. Ended up in the oil and gas industry in the Colorado Army National Guard, and been doing that ever since. Actually just recently transferred over to the Civil Affairs side on the Army Reserve side, and have been fighting for justice in terms of trying to pass legislation to try to reform our military service academies, reform our military in general, uh, and in the meantime, contributing as much as I can to my local economy and my environment by working with the energy industries and volunteering for a non-government organization called Developing World Connections, where I travel to countries like Nepal and uh, Peru and go build schools and everything else internationally to try to help people who really really do need help from from Western countries. So that's basically my background in a nutshell in less than, you know, a minute. But, you know, hopefully that gives your listeners some background. Yeah, man. So that's that's absolutely insane. Are you still a specialist? Oh, yeah. I'm a 36-year-old specialist. In How, no, I mean, but what? when did you enlist? 2000, 2015. So how, how like, you yeah. were... So, let's first, talk like, about, so, so let's talk about that, actually. Yeah. That's actually a good kickoff to the military unable to recognize leaders in its own ranks and using a very archaic system to arbitrarily just put people into blocks. And so the interesting thing about the national guard is that, so when I joined the national guard, and like I said, to understand the context of the story, you'd have to understand my background, but regardless, I was only allowed to enlist as a specialist, no higher, even with a master's degree uh, and working in a professional industry. So I come into the guard the National Guard only runs off slots available, right? So in the specific MOS that I was, so I was a Special Forces Parachute Rigger. There's only like five of us in this specific unit in 19 Special Forces Group. Four of them are NCOs, and they have all the NCO slots filled. There's only one junior listed slot, and it's a specialist, and that was my slot. And since no one promoted or ever moved up in that unit because they like their slots, because there's only a certain amount allotted to the Colorado Army National Guard, I could also never move up. So I was stuck in that slot for eight and a half years because there's nowhere to move up or go to. And at being a rigger, it's a very niche MOS. I could only stay in 19 Special Forces Group. I cannot go to any other unit in the Guard unless I wanted to go back to AIT and switch jobs. And with all due respect, being a civilian professional with a master's degree, I have no desire to go to AIT to be a truck driver in the Army for six weeks of my time to actually lose money in my civilian job just to make the rank of E5 in the National Guard to make an extra $85 a month. Like that's 
it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it So the Army has a real bad, or in the military in general, especially the Guard and, and the Reserve side, they have a really bad way of recognizing talent, you know, and they put these people in arbitrary boxes. Like, well, the paper says you're a specialist, so that's what we're going to do, and that's how we're going to treat you as. I was in a unique opportunity when I was deployed overseas in CENTCOM where there was two guys who saw that I was not really a specialist. <laughs> they were just like, oh, wow, you have a master's degree and you do this stuff. Like they Then they gave me a, they gave me a chance, right? They gave me a shot, and I got put into an intel position, and we did some of the best intel work in CENTCOM where we were reporting to the G1 directly, and I'm a parachute rigger. So I think I proved that you don't have to necessarily be qualified in an MOS to be good at that job. You have to be given a chance. And that's actually why I switched to the reserve. So recently, like literally a week and a half ago, I finally got my conditional release paperwork from the guard to go to the army reserve. So now I'm, I'm going to be an intelligence analyst over in a civil affairs unit at Fort Carson, but that's not my objective. My objective is the commission, right? So I'm trying to be a military industrial specialist over there. But once again, going through the arbitrary process and the boarding process to get your commission back, especially with my background with the Academy, you know, it's, it's a giant nightmare when we have this massive recruiting crisis and you have people who want to stand and who want to serve and want to be in leadership positions. And they're just like, nah, never mind. We don't want to do that because, you know, this guy's been in for 10 years and he's slotted ahead of you or, you know, whatever else. So, I think that's that's one good point about leadership in the military is if you are in a position of leadership or you have the ability to actually give people responsibilities, give chances to people that you would unexpectedly let it come from, because I think you would be surprised. There's a lot of talent in the United States military that is wasted because we only work on rank and position in the military as the as the God factor and how you're going to be treated. And sometimes you'd be surprised, especially in the Guard Reserve side where people have professional civilian jobs, you would be surprised at the level of talent that you have in those ranks that's being wasted. Uh, another example would be we had a Google engineer as working in the S6 who was a specialist, E4. I mean, this kid was making six high six figures a year in the civilian job, but came and deployed to CENTCOM. And there was a major internet issue overseas. Like one of the lines went down and he actually knew how to fix it in less than 20 minutes. But because he was a specialist, no one would listen to his emails. No one would listen to him. And they didn't have internet for about a week and a half out there. And he just sat there and just went, well, they don't pay me enough to care. And no one respects my experience because of my rank in the army. So that's another example of, you know, wasted talent. When you have a literal Google engineer in the Army National Guard deployed to the Middle East where he's not being respected and recognized because of his army rank, right? Uh, yeah, it's so. in, it's incredibly common. And I mean, I think it's just a symptom of bureaucracy and there's nothing that we can do about it being a huge bureaucracy. It makes it makes it so that like all, all the things that don't make sense, it's because there's not a profit motive. There's nothing to align mm -hmm. um, purpose, you know, so like there's no incentive to recognize people because like, what are we really producing? Now, as soon as we're in combat, that changes the calculus a little bit. And then lethality and survivability become important because people's yes. lives are on the line. So they begin to take things more seriously. But uh, especially in garrison, things just get absolutely crazy to the degree that uh, they don't make sense. And uh, I mean, to your point about giving people opportunities, uh, 
I, I feel like the way that people interact in the military, especially as they go up and rank and become field grades, you get less and less interaction mm-hmm. with people kind of across the, the rank spectrum. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about being a medical provider as I get a huge cross section. I get to spend an hour at a time talking to people of every rank in the organization. And, you know, I, I find that there's not the, the correlation between I, somebody's capacity, capability, competence, and potential, and their rank isn't as high as you would hope. And I so, uh, like the, the big workaround is, you know, what your special forces group did with you, which is, especially in that environment, I think long tabs generally are, are more open to thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they didn't have a problem with it, but I don't think that that kind of thing would have happened in a conventional unit, just Absolutely from not. The, the risk perspective where they're yep. like, everything's in terms of mitigating risk. And it's like, Oh, well, this guy is this rank. And so, you know, if something goes wrong and I put him in charge of something, you know, people are just un- unwilling to take risk. And given, given the nature of the profession, it's, it's pretty perverse. Um, so I, you mentioned being in oil and gas and I'm, I kind of want to delve into that and sure. the fact that you have this real world experience because a lot of people have degrees, right? My, my undergraduates in, in political science. And so that's kind of, uh, there's a lot of BS in, in that field, like, especially mm-hmm. getting to the graduate level, the, the writing becomes like excessively turgid and not really communicating anything of meaning. And, uh, that that's a case in a lot of the humanities, it, but it's kind of an infection that spread across every single profession that's more associated with government bureaucracy and contracting which that web fans out and touches almost every sector of the economy. Now, if not every sector of the economy, whereas oil and gas, that's, that's real stuff. That's energy. Mm-hmm. It's like the foundation of civilization is affordable energy. And so that's one of the realist kind of professions to, to be in and connected to real world outcomes, either it happens or it doesn't. I think, you know, some aspects of medical care are similar, but with the insurance system and structure that kind of perverts it. I imagine renewable energy kind of perverts the energy sector a lot where there's this focus on, Oh, climate change. And we got to reduce when, you know, I don't, I don't yeah, think that's, that's uh, a, I will tell you from real, real life experience, like that's an absolute joke. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's hilarious watching it in real time. Yeah. So, so let's get into that because I think your experience there is, well, you, you didn't have that experience when you were an air force cadet. So maybe nope. let's go all the way back. Cause this is a personality thing. Like you just have a personality that. Yeah. And we, we can, down. um, so basically, I wanted to go to the Air Force Academy ever since I was in 12th grade. Like, I ended up going there in 2006 to 2010. Like I said, got roped up in working as an undercover informant with Air Force OSI and uh, was removed 30 days after graduation with my degree and my commission withheld because I got involved with reporting sexual assault, harassment, rape, drug trafficking at the Air Force Academy. And if anyone knows anything about the Air Force Academy, if you make the football team or the generals look bad, they make you disappear. I mean, that's that's a 13-year story in 
30 seconds. Yeah, just, but... to, just to interject, the, the way that you laid it all out to Sam was, I mean, I, I was not planning on listening to like an hour and a half podcast and I was just riveted the whole time. So I'm definitely going to link to that. And I recommend people listen to that to kind of get the whole story chronologically. Yeah. Um, and just the way that they railroaded you with that article 15 for essentially doing the right thing and trying to uh, take care of a, of a cadet. And, yeah. you know, I know that you said, oh, well, it was the letter of the law. So like whatever. And no, man, like it was, it was total bullshit. Everyone oh. knows that article 15 just slaps on the wrist. Like I, I see article 15 handed out like candy and they use that to yeah. destroy my entire career and put a $250,000 tab on my credit report. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, like exactly. Because okay. they, because they can like, as soon as, soon they can. as you admit like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. I, I did something wrong. Um, in any context, they're like, oh yeah, there you go. I mean, same thing happened to Mark Bashaw. I mean, he yep. didn't admit that he did anything wrong, but they got a conviction on him and didn't have any punishment associated with the conviction in the court. Correct. Because yeah. they were like, hey, this is like he he really didn't do anything. Like, yeah, he broke the letter of the law. He didn't. You know, the, the judge was, I think, uh just just straight up wrong and didn't understand what was what was going on. But nevertheless, they got a conviction suspended any of the punishments but then used the fact that he's convicted to railroad him and so that like this kind of thing is well uh, that's like the that's like the funny thing about article 15 is like i was never convicted of a crime or anything yeah it was like yeah. you know, it was it's just because it's the uniform it's a procedural code. thing it's yeah. a uniform code of military justice and it needs to be abolished like in my personal opinion like we don't really need it anymore like there's there are certain things for context but like you could just have a company rule book for that like you know at my company if you mess up or do something like this there's union rules you can go to HR, you can file a grievance, you can file complaints. Like the military needs a system like that, obviously, because we have our own special internal things of handling things. Like if soldiers so late to work or whatever else, like that, I understand. Um, but in terms of all the major offenses that are covered in the UCMJ, we have state, local, federal laws that can handle all of those things um, that are much better dealing with those than the U.S. military court system. The U.S. military court system is arbitrary. It's run by a jury of a panel of officer of your peers, which, and not only that, but the military judges mostly are protecting the changes in command at any given point. Like I have in the 13 years since I've left the Academy and all the sexual assault cases that have gone on since then, since my time there, I think there's been two actual convictions by the Air Force Academy Two. you know what I mean? And when you have to listen to women tell me that they were forcibly raped so badly that they have to have a tampon surgically removed from them, and then that that person still commissioned and graduated because of the arbitrary rules under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And these are the type of people that are coming out of our federal service academies. It enrages you. Like, it absolutely enrages you. And then this goes on to the topic of what we're – the bigger topic we're discussing today is leadership, right? These are the people that are in charge of other people in our system. And they're the ones who continue the bureaucracy. And they continue this lack of um, empathy or sympathy or being able to recognize talent. And then their only objective is to get to the Pentagon, go work for a government contractor, and then continue the bureaucracy. Like there's no one like Patton or Eisenhower coming back into the military trying to make revolutionary change or statues being built of guys that we actually respect from the last 20 years. Like those people just don't exist anymore. We base all of our leadership models and quotes from the academies and, and our uh, you know war colleges off of guys from World War II. Why is that? 
Well, because the type of character and people that how they developed leaders back then is extremely different than now. And ever pretty much since Westmoreland in Vietnam, our entire officer corps has changed because it changed into a, a mindset of military industrial complex where we're just yearning and churning, trying to do wars, increasing stock prices, technology, all these other things. And we're not getting back to the fundamentals of what it is to be an American, what it is to defend your constitutional rights and how to respect those rights and protect them amongst even our own service members anymore. You know, like I said, if you're not and if you're not part of that money making chain or you're not assisting the chain of command and getting to those places, they're going to get rid of you or they're going to make you stagnate to the point where you want to quit. You know, and, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, why do you stay in the military? I don't need the military at all. I have an amazing civilian job. Uh, there is no reason for me to stay in the military, but I stay in because I see the amount of corruption going on in the ranks. And I prove that you could be an E4, stand up and say something. And, yeah, it's really going to. It's really going to piss some people off, but as long as you're doing it through the right channels, you're holding people accountable. And one of the reasons I stay in is to hold those people accountable. Um, and I won't quit until they force me to stop or, you know, my knees give out from jumping out of too many airplanes, whichever one comes first at this point. Um, but there's not a lot of people that will stay in the military to put up with that. It's one of the reasons I stay in the reserve guard side, right, is because I can never do this active duty. I'd go, I think I'd go insane. I don't know how people do this active duty anymore. You know, it, I give them a lot of respect, but it's, uh, Putting up with the same broken system every day is amazing to me, right? Um, and that's one of the reasons that I went into the oil and gas industry was because right after I left the academy, I became a personal trainer for about a year or two. The only thing I knew how to do was work out. So I can make money working out, right? But I needed a lot of money to hire lawyers to fight the military. And personal training wasn't cutting it. So there was an, an article in the newspaper in Denver to go to a hiring event for this company called Baker Hughes. And I had no idea what Baker Hughes was. It was just like, hey, we're offering this amount of money starting. And it was way more than I was making as a personal trainer. So I show up there. I go through the whole process. And they're like, hey, can you swing an eight-pound sledgehammer? I was like, yes. And they're like, do you like working outside in austere environments? So I was like, sounds like the military to me. They're like, great. We're starting you off at sixteen fifty an hour, which was way more than I was making as a personal trainer collectively. So but it was it was like getting thrown into a meat grinder because a lot of those guys are ex-military, some pretty rough dudes. You know, it's like walking into a biker bar wearing a polo t-shirt, you know, polo shirt. You're like, I don't belong here. You know, you're like, well, hello, fellow oil field workers. You know, they all got like their mossy oak hats on and their cowboy boots. And I'm just like, I'm basically fresh out of the academy. You know, it's like, yeah, this kid doesn't belong here. Uh, but I was in good shape. So, you know. You're getting on the, you know, you go to CDL school, you learn how to drive big trucks, you learn how to work heavy equipment, and uh, it's make or break it. It's, I think it's one of the last industries in the United States or in the world relatively where there's no women that do that job. And if you can't put, put up and carry the heavy things and swing the hammers and get ridiculed every day, get your lunchbox thrown off the truck because you screwed up, you know, or, you know, staying up for 18 to 22 hours a day working all around the country, like you're, you're not going to be able to do that job. You'll, you'll quit. They'll force you to quit pretty much, or they'll fire you if you're not producing. Right. So it was a really rough six months as a green hat, so to speak. So when you're, when you're new, you wear a green hat and uh, you're out there carrying like heavy iron pipe and, but you have to work as a team. Everything is done as a team out there. You know, and if you're not part of the team, they'll just literally drop, kick you in the mud and get you dirty and throw your hard hat across the, across location because, you know, you can't figure it out. So there's a lot of similarities with like the military, my experience with the Marine Corps and the army um, in those aspects, but you're making a lot more money, a lot more money. So 
you have a lot of responsibilities though, and it's very, very dangerous. And hydraulic fracturing, I mean, you're working with iron pipe that we pressurize between 8,500 and 15,000 PSI, depending on whether we're using three inch or four inch pipe. Um, you're driving out there in a convoy of 30 trucks. You have to be able to repair your own trucks, get them moving again if they break down. You know, you have a whole mechanics. It's like I said, it's very military uh, in that aspect. And it's survival of the fittest, right? Whoever makes the company the most money wins and gets the next job. So you're in constant competition out there with the other service companies. So I worked for Baker Hughes. So we were constantly in um, competition with Halliburton up the road and Schlumberger down the other side. And it's who is completing these wells faster. And that's then the big companies would hire those contractors to keep going, right? So if we finished 16 wells with 200 stages pumping sand and water and everything into the well for hydraulic fracturing, and we did it faster than than Halliburton or Schlumberger, then Shell, Chevron, BP, all the big guys, they'd hire us for the next job, right? But if you screw up or you blow something up or you kill somebody on location, then it goes to the next company, right? So it's a very competitive, money-motivated environment, which in some aspects can be very dangerous, right? You start motivating people with just pure money and work. Um, you know, that's why all these oil field towns are full of strip clubs and bars, right? Because when the guys get off work, there's nothing else to do but spend their money in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota at strip clubs and bars, right? So there, there is that aspect of that, which, um, you know, a lot of people think of, you know, roughnecks in the oil field country as rough people. And they are, they definitely are. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those environments that if you're smart with your money, you can change your life. You know, instead of going out and buying three razors and, you know, spending all your money on booze and plane tickets going to Aruba every time you're on your days off, you know, you save your money and you buy a house and you buy land, right? So it's, uh, those boom towns are very interesting experiences for sure. And it's not a lot of places where Americans could definitely handle that type of hostile environment because it's not only is it a hostile work environment constantly, right? Guys are always yelling at each other and trying to get stuff done, but it's dangerous. You know, you have lots of equipment, lots of different chemicals and everything else. But at the end of the day, you are having a direct impact on the price of oil every day that you're working. It was kind of interesting. I remember one time we were in West Texas and uh, we, at that point, got this well producing back online after we uh, uh, float it back. So once you pop all the sand and rocks down there and you drop the explosives and blow the rocks up, uh, they have to flow the well back to get the remnants out, like the top pressure off, and then they, it'll start producing oil into the the tanks or the pipelines, wherever it's connected to. And at that moment in time, when we turned that well on, for the first time in history, we were out producing Saudi Arabia. We were numerically in 2017, producing more oil than the country of Saudi Arabia in the United States at that point in West Texas. And it was awesome. You know, like we had never made more money in our lives. Like I'll tell you, even since I had never made more money in my life than that point in time, you know, it was uh, literally the company man literally drove in three F-350 pickup trucks loaded with fresh crawfish from Louisiana. And it was like crawfish boil on location, boys, because you guys literally just broke Saudi Arabia today. You know, like that was awesome. Like that was really cool to be part of uh, to be part of that environment when I transitioned from uh, fracking to wireline because I did the explosives later on. Uh, that's when I got my master's done, became an engineer. You know, that's when you, you start making more of the serious money doing the, all the downhole explosives and things like that. But uh, that environment was awesome and it was amazing. But the biggest problem with the oil field that I experienced was like your time away from home, your your lack of ability to, you know, contain relationships and and also just the uh, the physical health. I mean, for me, it was like I was not sleeping. 
Like I, I felt like I didn't sleep for almost like five years straight. Like I was working 18 to 20 hours a day, you know, and they say it's a two weeks on one week off rotation, but sometimes that gets into 16 days on with five days off because you have to travel to different States or around the country. And then most of that time you're unconsciously sleeping or you're just trying to do laundry just to get all your stuff ready to pack it back up, to get back on the plane or get back on the truck to head out to the next state for the next job. So it was extremely high paced environment. And uh, I I could tell that it was literally starting to have an effect on my health. And that's when I also like, you know, I wanted to get married and be a dad and do all these things. Like that was the intention. And you can't, I don't know how guys did it doing that job. Like I think my, even out, even outside of the military, I'm pretty sure the oil field has a higher divorce rate than the military. Cause at least in the military, you kind of have housing, you know, you might be deployed for the most part, but you know, like you live in Colorado Springs, it's a military friendly environment kind of thing. Um, you know, you have like shops to go to and places to stay, like at least places around base have things that families can do. Those don't exist in oil field towns like Midland, Texas or Jal, New Mexico or Williston, North Dakota, right? They're, uh, you can't raise a family there. You have to live somewhere else and you have to travel and commute all the time to go to work and come back. So be the equivalent of like a Fort Carson soldier, like literally having to go to Fort Irwin uh, for three weeks out of the month and only being home for a week out of the month, right? That's not really a sustainable way to, to maintain a family environment. So there was a lot of broken families, a lot of divorces, a lot of domestic violence uh, that I saw with my guys. And, and it's hard. Um, but when the opportunity came with the next political season, so when 2020 was start, the election was coming, I kind of saw the tea leaves because obviously for political reasons, and this is not to make like, well, oil and gas is political. So we could just be honest about it, right? Oil and gas will follow politics to the T, right? So when somebody gets on stage and says, I'm going to ban drilling, every single oil company in the United States is going, taking note of that now. And actually, we're going to get ahead of it because we don't want to lose billions of dollars the second you get elected. And that's exactly what happened in 2020. So obviously between 2016 and 2020, we had a very pro-energy administration Drill, baby, drill, so to speak, right? So we punched more holes in the ground. Like I said, we were out producing Saudi Arabia. Gasoline was $1.87 a gallon. Life, everyone was making money. Life was awesome. Like when oil and gas is doing well, everyone's doing well because the energy prices are lower. Heating your home is cheaper. Driving your car is cheaper. And it keeps commodity prices in general lower when oil and gas is doing well. So everyone bitches about all oh, drilling and all this other stuff. You want oil and gas to be in business. You want them to be producing because if they're doing well, it has a direct downstream effects to the consumer in every environment in the United States and in the world. Um, yeah, I would, I would say in terms of economics, like you can just equate energy with civilization, mm-hmm. like cost of living, everything. Energy is the foundation of all of it. It is. Um, and it's, it's used in, in every aspect of the economy in your personal life. And I mean, think, think about what it does. It, it makes it so that your labor goes further, right? Mm -hmm. Like how much, how much manpower would it take to move 3000 pounds of metal, you know, 500 miles? Well, I mean, you go, yeah, I went to Nepal and saw that. Like I went to Nepal and saw that, right? Like these people will literally move. (laughs) 40,000 bricks by hand with no shoes when I could have done that job within four minutes with a three yard front end loader from, you know, cat, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's wild. 
People yeah. take that for granted. I think that's one thing that like why I encourage all Americans to go travel to a third world country. I encourage all Americans to go to India, go to Nepal, go to Indonesia, go to some place where you understand how good you have it here because oil and gas run the world. No matter what you say, you can talk about green energy all you want. It's, it's not going to replace anything in our lifetime with what we need. Even if, even, if, even in just material science, even this computer I'm talking to you on right now is made out of petroleum products. It's not made up out of a solar panel. Right. Um, and understanding that everything is linked like even in terms of international conflict the only and this is one of the reasons i went to civil affairs in the army to working intelligence is because everything in the world is run off of access to energy food and water that's it all these things going on in israel palestine and ukraine it all has to do with access to energy food and water all these so-called religious ideologies that is not accurate they use that as a justification to make people who don't understand the root base of how those areas operate, like feel bad for us because we're Jewish. Feel bad for us because we're Palestinian. Feel bad for us because we're Ukrainian. No, yeah, yeah. it's all narratives to moralize self-interest. And right. Mm -hmm. So self-interest is, it's like you said, it's food, water, energy. Like that's what self-interest is. Everything else is just the story about how you can get that. And when we're talking about like populist politics and, and putting America first, Right. We're talking about trying to increase access to energy, food and water for Americans and prioritizing that over other places. And um, I mean, there's there's people that will, will say, hey, we want to do that for the entire world. But ultimately, that whole justification, either it's they're they're not in a position to make policy and they're going to lose out from that and they're just delusional but really they're falling in on a narrative that somebody else constructed that's doing crazy stuff like with Burisma and Ukraine and and uh natural I can talk about that I can and talk about that all day yeah and there's <laughs> and there's politicians and people that are in in businesses that are making billions of dollars uh selling you involvement in these areas that really just benefits them and doesn't benefit the american people in general um so it, it, yeah it's very very interesting i i want to like maybe we can get into that in a little bit i want to drill in on on one of the first things you that you said because i think it's relevant and it's super controversial mm -hmm. but uh i mean i can tell you the story of um i i don't know if you know my background at all i was an infantry officer did rotc mm -hmm. But uh, same year group as you would have been. So like, yeah, we're, you know, we're we're so, we're peer. So, so you're, you're a major major lieutenant colonel now. Major, yeah. There you uh, go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're we're so we're we're peers in that way. Like we would have commissioned at the exact same time had they not railroaded you, and um, just when I was going through uh, infantry, they call it basic officer leader course. And yeah, Bullock. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I was at Bullock and they were like, hey, so why, you know, we all were in like a classroom. It was like, hey, why'd you want to do infantry with our like little platoon? And, uh, you know, people had different answers. And one, one of them was just straight up to get away from all the neurotic female leadership. And everybody's just like, oh, right. We don't have that anymore. So, you know, say what you will about, um, 
you know, females ability to do the job, which some obviously can and, and can make it through the training, but there's personality issues, uh, or I, I shouldn't say issues. There's differences. There's, there's, mm-hmm. you know, we're di- sexually dimorphic species. This, this much should be obvious to anybody that's not a complete, um, and there's, there's a reason for that ideologue. Yeah. Yeah. So those differences make it so that like when you're trying to form a tight group, one of the things that people don't talk about, but if you're trying to form, like you're, if you're in a squad or like a a small unit and you're trying to form a really tight bond with everybody in the unit and it's mixed gender and uh, you're married, right? Like, how do you think that uh, a male soldier's spouse is going to feel about her husband forming a tight knit, um, relationship professional relationship with a female soldier and and people are like oh you about oh you should trust him it's that's not the way that that women generally look at infidelity it's emotional infidelity that they're most concerned with and i, I think there's biological yeah. reasons for that yes and it's a generalization but it's that, true though i mean anyone yeah. who's been anyone who's been deployed knows that that's what exactly what happens <laughs> you yeah. know like like even i was overseas and I was married at the time, you know, but uh, because I, you know, I'm Catholic and I, I had a very devout version of my faith when I was over there, even though my, my wife wasn't Catholic, like I knew how to separate myself, you know, from the chaff of what was going on because I saw plenty of married soldiers or guys in relationships or women integrating in a forward support company. And there was a lot of stuff going on. Right. And I, I'll let people use their imaginations, right. When you're in a deployed austere environment, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, even Kuwait and UAE, as much as that's not as austere as people think it is, uh, some of those bases are pretty damn austere, right? Um, things happen because when you get put into a combat environment uh, in those in those certain areas, like your brain retrogrades down to basic necessities. Like you're worried about staying warm at night, eating, water, you know, and the, a lot of those primal things come out because it is programmed human biology. Like, as much as people don't want to talk about that from sipping their mocha latte and their Ugg boots hanging out at the Starbucks down the street because they're not in that environment, right? You know, they're living in their four bedroom house that has air conditioning and they can plug in their cell phone every five minutes. But when people are in those um, degraded environments, you know, a great book about that is Tribal by Sebastian Younger, right? Where humans are programmed to form those bonds to survive, whether that's sexually, whether that's in combat, whether that's in brotherhood and forming positive community relationships where everyone has a task, you know, if you're, if you're the blacksmith or you're the baker or whatever else, right. That's how those environments um, develop. And I, I agree with you hundred percent where yes, there are women. I work with women in the military now, especially on the Intel side or civil affairs side that are really, really good at their job. Heck my battalion commander is Tulsi Gabbard. Okay. She's an amazing politician and she's very good at doing them things, but she's also amazing at recognizing that these are the men I need in my organization to do their jobs, right? And she's not trying to take away um, from them having influence in what their specific civil affairs operations are. Uh, there, I have many friends from the Air Force Academy who are amazing combat pilots, AC-130s, fighter pilots, and they're very good at what they do, right? But they also, their capabilities are multiplied by the machine, right? <laughs> an F-16 is an F-16, and you know you grab the stick and it goes left and it goes right, and it doesn't really matter who's flying it, Right. So women do very good in those roles and those types of positions and whether, especially in aircraft. Um, But when it comes down to infantry tactics, special forces, 
special operations, there is a reason why really some of the women who made it through Ranger school so still are not really in Ranger Battalion, right? They're not they're not platoon leaders uh in Ranger Battalion, right? There's a reason why those organizations um are structured the way they are and why not a single woman has even made it through SEAL training yet. They haven't made it through BUDS, right? Even the one woman who made it through special forces selection, which went by the wayside. And I, I only know the story because I was in that environment for eight and a half years. Um, yes, there was one woman who made it through uh, the Q. She made it through the Q course. And then they assigned her to a unit. And I won't tell the unit because it'll embarrass them. But then she went to the kill house and she had a, an ND and almost shot somebody. And she was removed from that unit. <laughs> right? So she, she, she earned her beret and then it disappeared into the ether and no one ever heard about that. Right. So it's uh women have a role in the military and I respect, and we need women in the military. We need to have that type of um, emotional and thinking diversity in our military for sure. But when it comes down to brass tacks and it comes down to combat, the way it was even in 05 and 07 back in Iraq and stuff like that, uh, there is a reason why oil field groups and, and teams are all composed of men and there's a reason why infantry platoons are all composed of men is because they function best in a combat environment. And you don't want to reduce your lethality uh, and your emotional capabilities in those environments because you're trying to, your, your objective as a leader in those environments is to bring everybody home. Right. And I think the only other military that has a lot of experience with this is the IDF. But the IDF has a very, you know, the Israeli Defense Forces, for, sorry to use acronyms, um, they are in an ultimate survival mode most of the time. When they're over there and they do have women, you know, serving in the infantry and, and in those combat roles over there, but they also have like women platoons, right? So they have their own uh tribal formations in, in those groups uh when they're over there, but also they're 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 not ever not supplemented by adverse overpowering combat power in those situations as well. You know, you're not sending in a, a female a team of 12 people into a Hamas tunnel by themselves. Because if they get captured, bad things are going to happen to them, right? So, and I think you recognize that as an infantry officer as well, right? There's a reason why we have these designations and separations and combat roles. And it's not a bad thing. And I think the hardest thing that I see in the military now, in the U.S. military, and why we're having this recruiting crisis and this leadership crisis is that we're trying to force square pegs into round holes. There's no reason to, you know? If women there, want there, to try- There's absolutely a reason to you know it's there's there's ideological reasons to and we were talking about the moralization of self-interest mm-hmm. and what diversity equity and inclusion does i mean it is absolutely integral to the regime's overarching justification for power because yes. what are they doing in in ukraine it's not setting up gas deals for billionaires it's the russians are oppressors they're coming to oppress the free democratically elected government of ukraine it's all these oppression and and victim narratives and like that's what diversity equity and inclusion is all about it's all about establishing that there are uh oppressors and victims and the role of government is protecting victims from oppressors and so um if women are oppressed then yeah, proving that they can do every that blank slate egalitarianism is true, mm-hmm. and that they can serve in combat roles with no uh, with no downside consequences whatsoever, no trade offs. Mm-hmm. That's proof that 
anybody who says otherwise is a bigot and uh, is an oppressor. And we need more power over those people in order to reshape society to make it better. Now, like, that's not what the people that are actually like moving and shaking probably believe. But <laughs> it is what it is what a lot of the people that support those individuals and, and elect people that support those policies believe. And I think and I and I think that's an that's because we're too safe. That's that's the bottom line to it, is that we have nothing to fight about in reality. At the end of the day, every American, for the most part, has access to food, electricity, and water. I can turn yeah, on my faucet, and, you know, for now. For exactly, now. right? That's my And that's my big concern is that this kind of um, ideology is going to make it so that that doesn't last forever. I don't think it's sustainable. I think at some point we continue, keep continuing down this road and uh, every American is not going to have that. And it's going to take a lot of pain in order for things to restructure. I want I want to comment on... Uh, first of all, the physical differences, just to kind of state state my position there, because uh, I'm not an infantry officer anymore. I'm a physical therapist now. Mm -hmm. um, number one, I don't get to talk about this a lot, so I'll probably write an article about it sometime. But um, the, the number one disabling musculoskeletal condition, and, and I think most disabling condition overall in the military is back pain. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's what people get chaptered for most um or, or go through ida's the individual disability evaluation system um it's what makes it so that they can't complete training and uh you know the female spine on average can only handle two-thirds compressive load of male spine so a lot of these female service members get get sold this bill of goods like hey you can do all the same stuff and frankly many many of the dudes get broken Right. Yeah. Doing, yeah. Doing, I'm broke. You, know, you go to special force <laughs> assessment selection, you go to ranger school, and a huge percentage of the dudes get broken. A much higher percentage of the females are going to get broken. Absolutely. And so these these people that are pretending like there aren't these differences, it's at, out of some, you know, it's disingenuous, desire, right? Desire for social justice. They are permanently disabling some of these women. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I've seen it firsthand. Uh, and like after the fact, they're not happy about it. You know, like we the idea with, you know, a lot, having women do combat arms. Initially was, hey, you know, get the best person in the job and, and we're not going to force anybody to do it. But, you know, especially on the enlisted side, like I've seen 11 Bravo females that didn't want to end up as an 11 Bravo. And it's just kind of like the way that it shaked out because they were given kind of a choice between two alternatives and they didn't like the alternative. And so they ended up as an 11 Bravo and they didn't, they didn't want to be there. And then, you know, they they get very seriously injured with overuse injuries. And it's tragic. It's tragic to see that. Um, and it's what you would expect given just a sober assessment of um, bi biological differences. Um, so just, just to reinforce, there's like very clear cut 
scientific justification for like why we would expect this to happen and uh that the rhetoric of oh we're just trying to find the right person for the right job um well you know maybe do some analysis instead of just saying that because if you make the wrong decision uh there's consequences you know and some of those consequences are not reversible you know you get a very severe disc herniation in your in your lower back you know you lose a bunch of disc height and you know you're not going to be able to you're going to have a higher level of disability for a number of years in your life from that. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it sucks bad. Yes. it um, does. So I, I just wanted to point that out. Um, but then well, I, I want to mention recruiting and retention. So sorry, mm -hmm. I'll let you respond. Yeah, and, I, and I was just, you know, going into recruiting and retention, right? This is, this is exactly a good point is that it is okay that there are differences between men and women. Men have great roles in the military. Women have great roles in the military. And right now, am I going to change a narrative of women should be banned from combat arms? No, obviously I'm not going to, right? And that's not my place. My my biggest argument too is, can you meet the required standards without them being lowered for them to you meet, to meet them, right? The standards exist for a reason. Can you meet the standard? That would be my one you know point. And the second point to that is, are you job qualified and are you deployable? And for a lot of these people with like the injuries they experience or the, you know, the transgender uh, medications that they've been on. Cause I was with a transgender soldier who got kicked off deployment because they weren't deployable because they can't provide those medications in country. Right. So then, then why are you in this job? Right. So we spent all this money training you uh, and get you in these positions, male, female, or however you identify as. And then at the end of the day, you are a medical liability and you're non-deployable and you're not doing your job. So then what's the point? Like, why are you in the military? If you're in the military and we need you to do this job, combat arms, whatever it is, and you're non-deployable and you're just a medical liability, then you're not helping the force. Now you're just a burden on the command because they have to constantly make sure you're getting to appointments or you have to stay near the flagpole all the time. And now we have to send somebody else out in your place. So why are we even wasting our time with this in, in the first place? And I, I don't know if you've dealt with the Genesis system yet, so when I transferred to, yeah, it's interesting. And I think, so the, I think there's two components of re recruiting your attention. One is there are, there are not a lot of Americans that are willing to die for Americans anymore because they don't even know what being an American is. And I know that sounds like a lot of alliteration there, but it's true. You know, when I was in, it was, I lost family 9-11. I want to go kill some terrorists. And I was drank the Kool-Aid at 18 years old, going to go fly planes and bomb terrorists, you know? And then I realized America has never been more united than those few years after 9-11. And I saw it. I'm from New Jersey. I'm from New York. I saw the towers, you know, burn myself. Right. So I get it. And then I've lost friends in the past 20 years, you know, more than I can count. And, and it sucks. And then you realize, what was it for? But Americans now who are trying to join the military, there's not a lot of incentive because everyone is fighting all the time over whatever is the sky blue at this point. And there's no unity. They don't see any purpose. They don't even, they see constitutional rights being violated or being subjectively applied across the spectrum, not equally. So they go, well, what, what, what am I fighting for anyway? What's the incentive for me to even want to join? I don't care. I can go make more money in the civilian world and not have to deal with the military bureaucracy in general. So the only people that are left to serve in the military in the leadership positions are the best of the worst because all the really good dudes got out at E6 or captain because they're like, I'm not dealing with this crap anymore because I can't make change. No one listens to me anyway, and I keep getting reprimanded. So then the people that stay in are the guys that can't function in a civilian job because the military has made them like, 
not to sound mean, but like semi-mentally retarded when it comes to dealing with humans, right? And they can't do it. Like they, they're just like, this is what the rule book says and this is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to implement this terrible policy or I'm going to do a recall roster and call everyone in on a four-day weekend because somebody had their car parked in the first sergeant spot. And it's like, that's in, that's absolute insanity, right? So you're you're now left right now in this time frame in the military where the best of the worst are in charge. Very few people who are good leaders are staying in the military. They're leaving to go fly for the airlines or they're going to go fly, uh, get their six-figure job outside of it. So then the guys coming up underneath them are looking at it, their leaders going like, I don't even trust the guys that are in charge of me or the women that are in charge of me. And what am I doing? So there's a lot of self-interest. That's why I see so many soldiers and airmen and uh, naval personnel on TikTok and Instagram. And they're all, <laughs> they're all, that was not a thing. Like when I was, when I was first in, because, you know, you, it was mission focused, you know, small unit tactics type of stuff. And so you have, you have that lack of understanding what it means to be an American because we've lost so much of our influence overseas because some of the things we've been involved in are so absolutely embarrassing. It's like, what are we doing? You know, I, I could go into a huge diatribe about Ukraine and Russia because people just do not understand that conflict at all, what's really going on over there. And that's not what this podcast is. But then let's, let's talk about the Genesis system, right? So the Genesis system is good and it's bad. I think it's good because the military is trying to prevent people from hiding um, ailments that they had when they were younger and then trying to join the military, only join for a year fall off, you know, the cargo net and basic training. And now it's like, oh, the military has to pay me disability for the rest of my life because I was serving and I had this pre-existing condition that I didn't have to report, you know. But then I saw when I was down at MEPS a couple weeks ago because I was transferring from guard to reserve and I had to go through the whole process again where there was this outstanding individual who wanted to be an army ranger, young kid, 18 years old, 575 out of 600 on his ACFT, uh, top of his class, varsity athlete, captain of the football team, all this other thing. But he took an inhaler when he was five years old for bronchitis and he was disqualified from military service. Right. So now you have people who want to join for the right reasons, who are physically capable, but now they have to go through a six to eight month waiver process because he used an inhaler when he was five years old. And those people don't want to wait. They're just like, I'm just going to go find another job and do something else. So we're losing out. Like, is it good? Cause it keeps the people out who have pre-existing conditions that are serious. Yes. But now I think it's, it, you know, they took an inch and now they're going to, we gave them an inch. And now they're going to take a mile. And now recruiters are struggling so desperately with the Genesis system because they might bring in a hundred candidates that are, that are good. And they're expecting maybe 65 to 80 to make it through the system. And now they're only getting 15 to 20. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it's clogging up the system. I didn't know that. So, I mean, they've always had the ability to do chart review on the electronic health record going way back with something called Joint Legacy Viewer. Mm -hmm. So MHS Genesis is just the new electronic health record. You know, yep. it's the new software that we use. Um, it's been getting rolled out since 2018. I didn't know that they were using uh, electronic health record because when we came in, they were doing self-report. So you filled out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you did self-report. So the first thing that comes to my mind, which is kind of interesting, especially with, you know, talks of, you know, having uh, illegal aliens uh, fill recruiting requirements. Oh, man. Yeah. Is that, is that uh, foreigners will not have um, this medical history. And yep. so it, it functionally will discriminate a lot more heavily against Americans. Functionally, it'll discriminate a lot more against uh, people with legacy military service because they grew up with TRICARE. And so all their medical records are going to be a lot easier to review. 
Um, uh, correct. And that's so a that's, national that's security a, that's issue. Interesting, I don't think that was planned. I think that that's just one of those things where it's like, hey, I got a good idea. And then just not thinking through the second and third order consequences. Because if, if you do a physical exam, time now, and a person passes the physical exam, then they're, you know, from my perspective, they're physically ready, right? It doesn't matter what condition they had a long time ago. Um, you know, if, if what you can assess now in terms of tests and measures, um, they're, they're ready, then they're, they're ready. And <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's just funny. Cause I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, um, uh, legal immigrants in the military a lot yeah and so are. you know some of the best soldiers i've served with yeah, are yeah. mexican americans and yeah you're not you're not going to capture any of their pre-existing medical history and and a right. lot of them get you know have pre-existing conditions and get uh medically retired like that happens to quite frequently um not saying that 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 was you know planned or intentional but it happens and so like that's always a risk with every service member that they're not going to make it through their term of enlistment. Um, and I, I just, I don't know. I question how, how much predictive validity uh, looking at medical records going back that far and applying the standard. I mean, I would just use, I you know, they should go back to doing self-report, but that's, uh, so know, actually, that's, that's DHA, dude. That's that's yeah, defense health agency, I bet. And they're yep. they're full of terrible ideas. So uh, yeah, the, the good idea fairy, I think it like emanates from the DHA and they should be yeah. burned with fire and destroyed because they're another yeah, bureaucratic could, yeah, bureaucracy could, system that needs to be taken out completely. Because they have a direct effect on my federal case currently, because you know, like I said, uh, you know, slight addition to my background is one of the main reasons I have this neon sign behind me and why I run this podcast, uh, the Dark Saber podcast, is because the military intentionally falsified my mental health records saying I was crazy in order to let a bunch of people who committed sexual assault get away with it. So they, yeah. they said I was crazy in order to dissuade uh, the judges from making convictions. Right. But let's talk about this mental health aspect of Genesis as well. And this is where Americans have been shooting themselves in the foot instead of like Going outside, eating right, working out, and sunning your butthole, so to speak, which I, I fully encourage people to do because um, we have taken health for granted in our country. And as a result, we think we can medicate everything. And in the past 10 to 12 years, there was this narrative, uh, minus the outside of the opioid crisis, where if parents as kids were too much of an issue and they had ADHD to start giving them Ritalin and sending them to therapy, cognitive therapy, and give them all these like bipolar drugs and whatever else. That's actually another thing that's being caught by the Genesis system that's eliminating a lot of kids from joining the military as well, is that they went to therapy as teenagers thinking they had all these issues uh, because they their parents told them to, and then they got put on antidepressants or Ritalin or ADHD medication, and that is disqualifying from them as military service as well, when in a way they were involuntarily subjected to that system by their parents because their parents watched too much YouTube or, or whatever it was. you know, And that, instead of being an informed parent and being responsible and understanding, hey, maybe your kid just needs to go outside and run versus locking him in a classroom and 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 being disruptive to his teacher and then putting him on a bunch of drugs or antidepressants, you know, because you're living in these unhealthy environments with unhealthy processed food and all that. And we go down that whole, you know, rabbit hole as well. But parents in the past 10 years have just been lazy. 
they've been so wrapped up into the bureaucracy of American politics and just go to money, uh, go to work, make money, try to survive this economic system in America and inflation, and everything else. That instead of taking care of their kids and raising kids, you know, within our gender roles as men and women and who choose to have children, they're just medicating their kids. And as a result, it's actually taking away opportunities for them now as, as young adults um, and, and at no consequence to them as parents, but their kids were just doing what their parents were told when they were, you know, 10 to 16 years old. And, and I'm, I was seeing that now in the military as well as that they're being disqualified for military service because they were on uh, psychological medication throughout their teenage years because they couldn't cope with being bullied. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting with the psych meds, you know, because I mean, there's certain things like antipsychotics, which, I mean, I think there's some rationale there. Sure. Uh, I think things that people get, uh, uh, boarded for but i mean how many people in the military are taking adderall and ritalin right now i mean it's a huge huge number and um you just got to get in the military first so then you can take it right <laughs> once you're yeah. in the military and it's prescribed then it's fine yeah yeah i mean it's it's right? it's waverable so um well that's I mean, another thing too i have, I have a funny story about that when I, what's that that's another so like, thing about the recruiting crisis too is the is the waiver process. So like you know, yeah. and, and to go on with your story is that the problem is everything is waverable by the the appropriate rank, so to speak. But the system is so backed up and backlogged with the genesis issues and everything else. A lot of these kids don't want to wait six months to two years to get their waivers processed. Yeah, it's not worth I didn't know about this aspect. Yeah, the thing that I think and and talk about is the whole trust thing, which you did mm -hmm. mention. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's there's no trust and. I think the reflex when say, well, how can we restore trust? Uh, and they, and they want to sell the idea that, that, Hey, like, well, how do we, how do we restore trust without actually being trustworthy? Like that's my whole stance is they're not trustworthy. Like these people do not uh, care about the constitution. They demonstrated that in spectacular fashion in the context of the COVID vaccine mandate. Mm -hmm. And so they're not accepting any responsibility for that any any responsibility for breaking the law and infringing upon the uh, constitutional rights of service members. And they just want to say, Hey, it's uh, it's water under the bridge. And no, it's, it's not, you guys broke the law, you violated the constitution. And if you can't even accept responsibility for that and say, Hey, you know what made a mistake then really it's insane to think people should uh should trust you you know they they really shouldn't because you're not trustworthy if something like this happens again you will almost certainly do the same thing and so that's one of my my big concerns is that it's not i i don't see a way that senior leaders can regain trust because they're, I, I question their character and I question their integrity. Um, and they, and they can't because no one's holding them accountable. And there's one specific thing in the law that avoids them from taking extreme accountability. Right. And this is actually one thing I'm trying to overthrow in the long term with my case is that there is a Supreme court case called Parker versus Levy. And this is something that was cited in my 10th district court of appeals, which is right below the Supreme court right now is that the military is a separate society and should be treated as such. Right. So the military uses the Parker versus Levy argument, uh, even above uh, the Ferris doctrine, right. In order to get out of any sense of responsibility and saying that we have our own internal system 
and we will take care of it because we are the military and this is what is expected of us. This is how the military has become the fourth branch of government, where they can skirt the constitutional law and requirements that every other citizen is subjected to under the law and play their own game and play their own legal descriptions in court. And one of my objectives long term would be to overturn Parker versus Levy to ensure that the military is subjected to absolute constitutional law, not just when it's convenient for them. Right. And this is what they use to violate constitutional rights of our service members, especially with the COVID-19 environment is we we made up the rules for COVID and we enacted those rules. And those are the only rules that matter, even though what we did was technically illegal constitutionally and federally and everything else. It doesn't matter because the military is a separate society and we have our own rules and we do our own thing. And this is like my big advocacy for reforming the Uniform Code of Military Justice as well is because they use their own special rules, processes, procedures and internal regulations within the Army, whether it's an AR, Army regulation, AFI, Air Force instruction, whatever it is, to violate constitutional rights willingly. And there's no recourse because currently the Supreme Court won't rule against the military in these instances because of Parker versus Levy. That's always their argument. So until that gets overturned and still we start passing bills and reforms to ensure that military members have 100 percent constitutional rights. Right. And I can understand, like, don't speak out against the president of the United States. All right. I can I'll, I'll, I can understand that one. Right. But the fact that. The military is so easily able to violate my Fourth Amendment rights, my 17th, uh, 14th Amendment rights and everything else and get away with it with no with no punishment to them. And I'm the one that has to suffer the consequences. Right. I have no recourse because of that arbitrary um, reading of that law. And I, and I and if I go back and remember Parker versus Levy, it was like there was this doctor during Vietnam who didn't want to join, even though it was the draft, and he was being forced to become a medical doctor in the army during the Vietnam War. And he absolutely refused to treat anyone because he said, I don't agree with this and I don't want to treat anything. And they said, well, the military is a separate society and should be treated as such. You are a doctor with special skills and we're going to force you to medically treat um, these members in the military and there's nothing you can do about it. And if you don't, you're going to jail. And and that's, that's like basically the loose Parker versus Levy uh, case summary there. But it's being taken way out of context now. Like this is not a combat environment where we're forcing people in a draft to use special skills to help other people. This is now being used to take away your freedom of speech, your freedom of choice, your religious freedoms to, you know, with the vaccines and everything else. And it's being taken way out of context. And like I said, there's been no check on that power because nobody cares to fight it because go ahead and try to fight the DOD. I've been doing it for 13 years. I've spent over $200,000 of my own money doing it. Right. It's insanity that they have this much power and nobody really cares. And why? Because at the end of the day, Americans go home, they turn on their faucet, they have water, they have electricity. It doesn't affect them. So why should they care? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think a lot do. And that's why I think your actions are important. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do the same thing. But it's I mean, in, engaging in the court of public opinion because the American people need to understand what's going on and understand what the consequences are if we don't do anything to address it. So like all the, all the measures and, and practical steps that you're seeking, um, you know, that's, that's exactly the kind of leadership that we need, like in, in DOD, frankly, to move forward, because without that, without any accountability, uh, think things won't get better. You know, they, they won't, and the organization's not going to be able to meet its mission 
I mean, frankly, I don't think, I already think it can't. I, I think that reports of readiness, like, I don't know if you saw the Heritage Foundation, it does the annual index of military strength. Yep. I think, you know, from the Army standpoint, it, it rated the Army, I think, as weak. Um, and that, I think, is overestimating the strength because it based it on brigade combat teams at a state of being a state of readiness that I'm very confident that they're not actually at that state of readiness because a lot of it's self-reported, right? Like, you know, metal, right? Misunderstandable task list. Yep. Um, commanders certify that at echelon. And if you say, Hey, I'm, I'm an, I'm untrained, you know, like a, a friend of mine who's a company commander did that and he got absolutely destroyed by his brigade commander and uh, the division commander over it um, because it, it reflected poorly upon them. And then they went to NTC and his assessment was probably more accurate than all of his peers who said that they were a P or a T based on how they performed. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that issue is pervasive. I think that readiness stats reported in uh, USR I, I think are grossly inflated. I think they pushed the risk down to the junior most uh, soldiers to indicate that there's a higher level of readiness and certify that like at the user level. So like mechanics are getting pressured to not input things that indicate that uh, vehicles are are practically they're deadlined and then they're getting reported in the system that they're not deadlined. So like all this is is speculation. Like I could actually find the answers to these questions if I went and asked, but I don't want to know because you put that oh, all that's, together. It becomes oh, classic. it's it's true uh, because so many people are so worried about keeping uh, their training Excel sheet with green colored and green yeah, you boxes. Got to keep the green chiclets. Yeah, and if it if it looks like a Christmas tree and it's got a lot of red in there, it makes the commanders look bad, right? And that's that's why I do what I do is I do not care about making people look good. And I do not care about lying and having this chain of command corruption incessantly permeate our ranks. One thing I remember I told multiple captains because I had a lot, obviously a lot of the captains and stuff I deployed with, uh, they were all younger than me because my promotion board for Lieutenant Colonel was supposed to be this year. So, you know, when people started learning my background and saw the work that I was doing was good overseas and that even like the two-star general, you know, General Blaylock, and General Carrillo was looking at our briefings. They're like, "Oh, maybe we should take this specialist seriously because he he knows a lot about oil and gas." And I was that was that was my my a lot of my analysis overseas was doing oil and gas trafficking and following the money, right? Because that's the easiest way to find where terrorists are getting their money. Because that's the easiest way to get money in the Middle East is oil and gas. <laughs> Where's where are they flowing into? What ships are going where? That's where the money's going. This is where they're buying the weapons. This is where it's going to blow up next, right? In uh, a very quick summary, but. You know, when I have a lot of younger captains and younger officers and even younger NCOs, Dorito, what do I do in this situation? Or this person comes up to me and asks me this. And I sit there and just go, sir or ma'am, you have to have the courage to command. Stand up for what's right. It may not be popular, but you're going to have to make the hard decisions. And I will tell you that my my uh, S2 officer ate a dick a lot because he, he, he did the right thing. He said, sir, we're not ready. Or sir, this is not how it's going to go. Or Sir, I don't recommend this is going to happen. And he's like, you can't tell me that. Like, you know, because your job is to tell me everything's great all the time. And he's just like, but it's not. And to be fair, uh, and I love Lieutenant Kraft. He's a captain now. But I mean, like, 
He kind of lost his ability to get put into company command position because of that when he came back from deployment, but he did the right thing. And at the end of the day, he can sleep at night knowing he made the right calls and he told the truth. And, you know, you just have to have the courage to command, you know, like it's like General Patton says, you know, uh, a good plan executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. And the problem is so many military commanders now, especially in the junior officer ranks, are so afraid of making decisions that might affect them looking good or anyone else looking good because they want that position of command. They don't want to be retaliated against. They just want to get the next promotion. They want to be in position of command or executive officer, whatever it is. And they don't want to do anything to rock the boat, but they don't understand the detrimental effects that's having on their young junior enlisted and their young NCOs underneath them in their platoons or whatever else. And at the end of the day, those are the people that are suffering, right? You might have gotten your Excel sheet to have all the green boxes in it, but at the end of the day, those trucks are not ready. They are not ready and they don't have the parts to fix them. And they're out now slaving 18 hours a day in 150 degree heat, uh, you know, covered tent in Kuwait, trying to replace the transmission line because you told them that that truck was ready tomorrow to be loaded on an aircraft. And it's not, but it made the battalion commander happy. You know, right. And it's just be honest. If it's fucked up, stick to your guns, you know, and and if you have to suffer because of it, you know, that's your responsibility as an officer. You're supposed to be able to take that heat, you know, and and defer responsibility of making things look good. You know, it's not about making things look good and lying. It's about making your troops ready, making them combat effective, making them lethal. Right. And if you're taking away from that by just going along with this bureaucratic system, you're part of the problem. You're not helping fix anything, right? So do you want to be part of the problem or do you want to keep, or do you want to fix it? Do you want to keep bitching at every command staff meeting about how everything's always screwed up and in the chow hall and everyone's going to complain like all the time about the same stuff, or are you going to change something? And I ask those questions to these young NCOs and officers all the time. I'm like, so, Hey, sir, ma'am, you're going to keep bitching about this. You're going to do something to fix it. I mean, I'm just a specialist. I could do it for you. And people aren't going to like me. And I'm probably going to stay specialist for another eight years at this rate. If I keep opening my mouth, doing your job for you, but I'll be glad to do it. I mean, that's why I showed up to Washington DC in full ASUs. You know, I was like, I just proved if you follow the system and you knock on all the doors, you could start getting results, but no one wants to do it. You know, because at the end of the day, this is what supports their families. This is what pay their bills, but the army doesn't pay my bills, you know? And I think that's what they hate about me the most is that they know that they can't really control me, you know, as long as you're doing the right things, but it's just, we need to have braver leaders in our military who can stand up and do the right thing. And you got guys like Mark Bashaw and everyone else who he did, they did stand up and do the right thing. And they did say this violation of our constitutional rights and they're trying to do these things, but then you see the system absolutely crush them. And that's why it's really up to the American people and, and having these discussions on podcasts like your, like your own. Um, Cause if we don't keep having these discussions and educating the public, they're never going to know to hold the military accountable. Like when I was in DC and I was talking to these senators and congressmen and these staffers, they were just like, we had no idea that this was an issue. We thought we fixed it all when we passed like the Vanessa Guillen Act or the Brandon Act. I'm like, nope. And this is how your military leaders are circumventing things and lying to you. And they're just like, they don't know. They have so much other stuff going on. They don't know. They just believe whatever. A guy walks in with three stars on his shoulder and they believe everything that he says because that's what his uniform says is I should respect the rank and I should believe everything that he says. But man, most of these people are just straight up lying. And it's uh, the accountability aspect is is going to be our downfall because if we don't start holding these leaders accountable and putting people in positions of power that really deserve to be there, I can't tell you what the future of our, our military our, and our capability is going to be, but it's, it doesn't look very good right now. Yeah. So you mentioned something that's kind of like an intractable issue though, where, you know, the, the S2 that you work for, 
Um, you know, if he's not able to command, he might not be able to make 04 now. And uh, I mean, frankly, with your personality and this outlook, it in a weird twist of fate, you probably would have gotten pushed out as uh as, as a captain three. Yeah, yeah, for and sure. Not, and not been able to pick up 04 because you were doing the right thing and it wasn't popular with your Raider. Because really that's that's what it boils down to. Like you were yes. you, you were talking about the complex stuff with military industrial complex. That factors in at the senior levels mm-hmm. for a normal career, like a normal 20-year career. It is all about what your Raider thinks about you, period. Nothing else matters because that's the only thing that's going to determine whether or not you get promoted. Because that's what they're looking Agreed. at. They're looking at your evaluations. And your grader, the person who writes your evaluation, they use specific language. They give you a uh, top lock or not. And that's it. Like, it's it's pretty mathematical. And so it's a popularity contest with your grader. And so if yes. your grader expects you to do things that are uh, illegal, immoral, or unethical, they don't have to lay those expectations out explicitly. They can be implicit. And then how could you hold them accountable for that? But you know, like what, what can you do if they don't give you a top lock? You know, if, if somebody actually absolutely trashes your evaluation, yeah, there's true. recourse, you know, yeah. because you're like, Hey, look, I appealed it and I did this and this and this, but not getting a top lock, like, you're never going to be able to demonstrate, hey, like I deserve the top lock and this officer didn't give me. It's just not going to happen. So, so that that actually did happen to him. And ironically, what he decided to do is he's now transitioning to the Space Force side of things. Um, yeah, so know, there's there's ways around it. Like for me, for me, I was able to make 04 because um, the COVID thing, frankly, like the timing was just my last right. OER going to the COVID thing was right when i was not getting the covid vaccine i i don't know that my battalion commander at the time that gave me an excellent eval uh cared about that or or knew i don't know but like my last that we are going to that board like i've been being a brigade physical therapist for the past three years and all of these ethical issues and problems they're all in the operational army Nobody really cares how you provide care as a brigade physical therapist. My brigade commander, I was like, hey, I want to do this and this. And he was like, yeah, cool, go for it. You know, brigade sergeant major, same thing. Hey, cool, go for it. And so my my job was to optimize human performance, get people feeling better, provide, you know, high quality patient care. And I had like full, full independence to be able to do all that stuff. And everybody just thought it was great. You know, everybody's like, awesome, you know, so there was no conflict there and it just worked out. If I was an infantry officer still like, no, there's no way in hell I would have made it. Um, It's just, it's just, there's no way it would have happened. I think one, yeah. And I think one piece of advice I give people on that, because, you know, younger officers have asked me, well, what can I do to prevent this exact situation that we're talking about? Right. And I sat there and like, well, do what I do. Document everything that you do. Document everything. And my, my go-to thing is like, you know, I can't tell how many times I've been threatened to give Article 15. So even like even in like SF, like even my NCOs and like everything else, like because I I have a mouth on me when I, when things are going wrong, right? Um, and I said, "They're cool. Oh, cool. You want it? You want to do that? Well, I have all the paperwork to back up that that's not true, and I'm going to demand trial by court martial. And although I, I'm also writing complaint letters to the IG and every single person in your entire chain of command, do you want to keep going with this? And they go, 
all right, maybe we're just going to drop this. I'm like, okay, cool. Because I know the process. Right. And I think yeah, a lot of people, you, you have, you have that skill set, right? Cause you've right. And that's what I, that's why I want to teach about, people that process. Yeah. But think about how much time that takes out of your day. It does. Right. A lot of time. Like how much time, a lot of time it takes out of you where you could be getting, getting shit done. And that's the thing is people are too busy. Like the interesting thing these days, and I think one of the reasons that I made it through the COVID thing unscathed is people are just too, like people above me are just too busy to railroad me, I think, you know, so you're probably correct on that. There was a little incident where, you know, I, I believe that a soldier was, uh, died as a result of being coerced to getting a, uh, booster shot while forward. You know, so they were they were lying to these soldiers and saying, hey, if if you want to redeploy, like you have to be updated on your booster. Right. And so we're going to push your redeployment date to the right if you don't get this booster, which was a lies course of tactic. The booster was under EUA illegal. Yep. And, uh, you know, this this dude in his mid 30s just you know, died in the sleep. And uh, I I think that's why. And so I mentioned that, didn't name him or anything, but there was some pressure where that brigade commander and battalion commander uh, talked to my chain of command and, you know, was essentially like railroad this guy, you know, and, um, you know, they, they didn't. And, you know, I, I had that support because I, ha- I hadn't done anything wrong. You know, I'm, I'm entitled to my opinions. Right. And uh, it's just. It's it is absolutely insane. I think the degree to which because uh, that that situation could have gone completely different. I mean, look at what happened to Seth Ritter with Major General Donahue, right? Mm-hmm. Or Don, you you tracking that whole issue yep. where mm-hmm. they, um, you know, command directed psych eval, and it was a social worker who was asking if he supported you know Donald Trump and thought the election was stolen and like. All, all sorts of crazy stuff tried to force medicate him with contraindicated medications like i mean the way that i put it is that he tried to kill him you know and and you know he got pushed out major general donahoe did over that whole issue and uh maybe it wasn't even that issue there was a bunch of other stuff that was going on so he he got essentially forced to retire we didn't lose his rank he's got a cushy job doing staff rides now i think uh so yeah no no real accountability, even though that that is absolutely insane. I mean, essentially tried to kill him. And, um, you know, the the degree to which you have to have support and, and know what you're doing, like what you said, if somebody else was in your situation and they just let themselves get, t- like did an Article 15, you know, then, I mean, it's game over for them. They could, they yep. could bust them down to E1, give them extra duty, just really screw with them um and then you know lie to them going into it being like oh it's going to be way worse if you do a court martial like all sorts of just crazy ways that people get railroaded for not understanding the system but really we shouldn't no nobody should have to understand all the ways in which they can get railroaded and how to defend themselves and get from getting railroaded leaders shouldn't be railroading their soldiers it's absolutely crazy they shouldn't be. And like, that's what I tell guys all the time. Like, you know, oh, you have to sign this, uh, whatever eval. I'm like, no, you don't. 
You don't have to sign anything. You, are you going to force me to pick up my hand and sign that I agree or disagree with your counseling statement? Like, I can't tell you how many times like I've refused to sign counseling statements. I just go, I don't agree with any of that. Uh, I think that's completely you trying to railroad me because you don't want me to go to free fall school or whatever it is because, you know, and, and I just go, I'm just not going to sign it. They go, well, we're going to call the JAG. I'm like, go ahead, call the JAG. And they're like, well, we didn't really think you're going to call our bluff. I'm like, no, go ahead, do it. Like, I know the system better than you do. If anyone anyone knows about military retaliation, I'm like, here's the thing. I'm an E4, you're an E7 or whatever, right? I don't care about my rank or position in this, in this particular unit because it doesn't affect my actual bills or anything getting paid. So if you want to play this game with me, we can do this all day. And I'll even give the vaccine example. So I had to pick my battles on this. So I got deployed to DC for the whole inauguration thing, right? And we were actually part of the only group of troops that got the FDA approved vaccine at the time. It was the only one. And they ran out within like a month and they never had them again. Everything after that was EUA, right? So maybe that's why my health has been okay. Like I haven't had myocarditis yet. I haven't had anything else. Um, but I have I refused. Think that, I think the actual rates of serious adverse events are pretty low, but you know, that's it's just, just me looking out for my health in general, right? Like, I don't yeah. know, but they were just like, if you want, you have to go to DC for, to protect Joe Biden, you're getting this vaccine no matter what. And it's the only FDA approved one. And it's for military personnel only going to the inauguration. I'm like, okay, fine. So we go get this, uh, you know, vaccine fine. We go to the DC, nothing happens. But then even when I went on my deployment after that, they were like, well, you guys got to get boosters. And we're like, I'm like, no, I don't. And they're like, well, you have to. I'm like, no, I don't. And that's, I'm like, is that EUA? They're like, yes. I'm like, cool. Show me where you can force me to take that. And they're like, who are you to tell me how to do my job? I'm a medical professional in the military. I'm like, I know the law and you cannot force me to do that. And then everyone's like, wait a minute. We don't have to take this. Like the whole line behind me is like, wait yeah. a minute. They, they can't force us. I'm like, no, they can't force you. Actually, if they do, it's illegal. And you can file an IG complaint. Here's the phone number. I started like going down the line and the entire medical staff was like, God damn it. Because I knew the rule. Right. And most of us all, you know, they were talking, you're not going to be able to deploy outside of the country once you get to this country because you don't have boosters i'm like show me where it says that in the status of forces agreement and they're just like damn it we can't i'm like that's what i thought see you later we're heading up north you know what i mean like they were trying to stop us from getting on the planes because we didn't have boosters or whatever it was and i was just like not gonna happen because it's like i said call them out on their own bluff and i guess it takes courage right because i'm it's me yelling at O fours and E eights about this stuff. And it's just because like, even you don't know what you're talking about. You're just trying to use your rank to push a narrative. And because you were told to do something without any doing actual, any intellectual research on what you're talking about. And that's the problem. It's like be an educated officer or senior NCO. If you're, if you're going to enforce a rule, know the rule, know the stipulations for it. And if you can't back it up, then support your troops who don't want to do that stuff or have religious exemptions or whatever else. But, you know, like I never got any boosters, anything after 2020 or whenever I got the, the initial shot. And many people after that did not. And then like a few months later, it all went away anyway. And everyone's like, oh, man, you were right the entire time. I was like, yeah, weird how that works. It's like, just know the rules, know the law. Right. Yeah, and you, you, you say that, but this comes down to the back to the Raider thing where, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, you can take care of your troops. But if that's not what your raider wants, then. Uh... So I encourage people to threaten the raiders. And I'm not saying yeah. that I'm not saying it's going to work all the time. Right. But I will tell you, because I do know the paperwork and I know the process, anyone, any 
like I said, I pissed off plenty of people my eight and a half years, even in the guard, in a deployed environment, because I go, oh, that's not how that works, sir or ma'am. And they said, there, well, I'm going to write you a bad 4100 or whatever else. I sit there and go, great. And then we're going to go to, we're going to, I'm going to file a complaint with CENTCOM or I'm going to do this. And I know all the rules and I'm an E4, but oh, look, you're an O3. Looks like you're up for position of command. You want to you want to play this rule that you were involved in a court martial proceeding for trying to enact illegal retaliation against your low enlisted troops? And they go, God damn it, Dorito, fine. Just leave me alone. You know what I mean? And then it goes away. You know, I'm not saying that's going to work every time. It might not. You might some have somebody who is in the good old boys club and they know everyone above the ranks above you do. But like I said, it's if you're following, if you know the administrative procedure and you know the courses of retaliation and you know how to use the IG and you know the court martial system. You can protect yourself if you're brave enough to take that risk. Just a lot of people aren't willing to take that risk and they would rather just shut up and go back to the motor pool, you know? Yeah, it it is a risk. And uh, yeah, you're right. People don't want to take the risk. And I, what, what saddens me is that people let themselves get boxed into a position where they're, they don't have enough faith in themselves to <laughs> take the risks that are necessary to take for them to fulfill their professional purpose. So, um, you know, if, if you're in a job and, you know, your, your professional purpose is to do something and that's getting interfered with, I mean, it's going to kill your, you know, in H2F terms, you, you, you guys, you know, anything about H2F, you heard about H2F as a yes. native regard. All right. Yes. H2F is the shit. Don't, don't I, give me that. No, no, actually, I think it's great. It's, and a lot of it, I think I'll, I'll even give SF a lot of the encouragement for that because they're trying to get back to this like more holistic approach to fitness and health and everything else. Yeah. In the I mean, got, and that's like what Thor we need. Three. Yeah, they got Thor 3. So that's like Thor, H2F's kind of modeled off Thor 3. It's mm -hmm. less less resourced, you know, mm -hmm. but um, spiritual readiness, man, you know. Huge, like, huge. If you don't feel like what you're doing serves a purpose, you're screwed. Like your health can suffer. You're not going to have the energy to do the things that you need to do to be competent and take care of things. If you don't think that there's a reason to do it. And if you allow yourself to get, if you don't make decisions early on in your career, no matter what it is, you know, the system is going to shuttle you down a path where as soon as you make that decision to compromise yourself the first time, like you're committed, like it's very difficult to step off that path once you're on it as you accrue rank you know especially for um you know people in my year group that are you know not on blended retirement system where it's like mm -hmm. 20 years or nothing and they're in mos's where it's like they're not able to really transition out of it and get another job easily that isn't yeah. just a bullshit corporate job that nobody wants to do anyway in mm -hmm. some longhouse hr nightmare um <laughs> You know, like people get path dependent and uh, it, it's just, it's sad. And I, 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 all we can do is talk about it. Um, I, so I, I don't want to keep going on this cause we could keep bullshitting on this topic forever. I, I want to sure. pivot into just talking recruiting and retention in terms of, cause there's one other point I want to make. And then I want to, I want to let you freaking go off on, uh, Ukraine and Russia and energy. Oh, I, yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And we'll just finish on that. So sure. one other thing, like, and this ties back to what you're talking about with being a roughneck. I think there's another thing when it comes to young men, especially uh, wanting to prove themselves and mm -hmm. using military service to do that. 
I think they look at the culture of the military and look at people that are in now that they consider to be kind of serious. And like everybody that's serious is like, this is a joke now, you know? So I, from your story, you wanting to do Marine Corps specifically and be a pilot in the Marine Corps, which is a harder path, you mm -hmm. know, where you had to go through the Marine Corps OCS, which was tough. Like you wanted that challenge. There's a lot of people that want that challenge. And if the military isn't providing that challenge, it really doesn't have a lot to offer, you know, like, especially for uh, junior enlisted soldiers in terms of money, you know, and, and the job, like having to deal with bullshit, like just, you know, the, the chicken shit of military life, right? It ain't got money to offer. It's got a lot of bullshit to offer, but it has this thing where it's like, you know, you did it and you did something hard and you made it through. If that perception is gone, that just anybody can do it and any, like anybody can make it through basic training, basic training is a joke. Okay. Well, anybody can make it through AIT. AIT is a joke. Anybody can make it through airborne school. Anybody like, as you start getting more and more of these things where there's not any attrition, and there's people that graduate from it that did just seem to be weak sauce, you know, from, and I'll say from the perspective of, a, of, of an 18 to 20 year old dude that is immature, high testosterone, eager to prove his, his manhood. Right. So like you could be a blank slate egalitarian and say somebody like that shouldn't exist and they should be reprogrammed to being, you know, uh, you know, a 50 year old feminist with 10 cats. But, you know, we, we both know that, that that can't be done. Like those kind of dudes that are eager to prove themselves, you know, the, those are the kind of people that are going to do the hard stuff that are going to be awesome soldiers, right? Yep. And you're going to lose all those folks if all of a sudden we have this oil and gas industry option where they can go do something that's legit, mm -hmm. super fucking hard and is <laughs> going to break most people off. And if you survive, not only do you get the respect from a bunch of people that are freaking tough. You also get a huge payday. Like, give me a break. Yeah. It's a no brainer. Like where, yeah. where do you think these people are going to want to go work? Um, they're going to want to go do that. And not to mention the whole purpose thing. So it's like, we look at what happened with the withdrawal out of Afghanistan and all the, all the GWAT veterans being like, well, what was that for? you know, all the, all the sacrifice and other people look on and they see that. And so if we don't really have that sense of purpose, which to me, it's just logically obvious. If that just happened, how can we expect that it's not going to, the next thing is going to be the exact same, you know, it's like Vietnam before that, like how, how can we expect that it's not just going to be some bullshit that wasn't well, even what doing and it will be Meanwhile, <laughs> like the alternative is you go work in the oil and gas industry and it's like all the shit that you were saying about how you're you're improving the quality of life of americans directly yep. in a right. in a measurable meaningful way and so if you're a patriot and you care about america and your fellow americans like if that concept is meaningful to you if you're a young healthy um you know strong you know, physically fit dude that's looking to make a difference and you're patriotic and you're eager to prove yourself. Like, that's what I'd recommend. An me individual too. Like, do. like the military, are you kidding me? Insane. 
like insane as a, a you know like why why would you do that to yourself in yeah. in comparison and i i i don't i don't i don't see how you you couldn't so like the the military is important in building like a base layer for some people but for the most part like the oil fields even more ruthless because like if you screw up you just get fired like there's no recourse like you don't there's no like article 15s and this arbitrary like command process and you're training command your raiders it's like no man if you're good you get promoted if you suck you don't if if you're good at what you do you move up like i moved up to assistant supervisor in less than two years you know what i mean because i was good at what i did you know what i mean and like and i was the so-called least experienced compared to the guys with 10 years out there but the oil and gas industry is one of the last areas where the harder you work and the better that you are it doesn't matter where you came from what your education is whatever it is if you're making the company money and they're getting more contracts you're gonna keep going right and and that's why i ended up becoming an engineer and you know less than seven years even after i finished my master's degree but it's uh it's very cutthroat and it's very high risk because at the end of the day it's like some politician comes out and says well we're gonna we're going to stop drilling to kill the environment and your company sells off and merges instantaneously and moves all its assets to South America, which happens all the time. That's a risk you take. Right. And I got lucky chasing the dragon. You know what I mean? I always avoided the, the lulls in the, in the oil field or transition to a different company before that happened. Um, but like I said, it's the camaraderie. Some of the best friends I have in my life are from the last 10 years I've worked in the oil and gas industry uh, from all. And then the cool thing is, it's like, you know, you always get certifications that are relevant. You know, in the military, it's like, yeah, you're really good at killing people. Well, that's not really what we do here. You know, thank you for your service. Uh, we don't really care for the resume accolades. Like I can't stand watching veterans watch, like type up their entire, like how they PMCS like Humvees for and motor pools. And they, they manage $30 million of assets. You didn't manage shit. Okay. Like that's not managing an asset. Okay. When you're in the oil and gas industry, you're actually managing multi-million dollar, billion dollar enterprises right? And assets and equipment that you are physically responsible for. And you better know how to run that equipment. Because if you light it on fire, you're going to get fired. It's not like, oh, you can flipple it <laughs> like you can in the army, right? So it's one of the areas where we don't care where you come from. We don't care what your background is. We don't care what you do. Can you do the job? And can someone take you under your wing if they trust you enough to teach you the next level, to get you to that next thing, to change, you know, change your hard hat color? Like, you know, you have your green hat, you know, who's going to be that leader that takes you to your white hat? And then if you want to become a trainer, who's going to take you to your red hat? You know what I mean? Like, how do you earn respect and responsibility? And I've seen, like, you know, basically your operators, your lower enlisted, and your engineers, or your officers, right? And, you know, you have some of the kids coming out of school minds, and we make fun of them and knock them down in the mud and stuff outside, you know, put them through the ringer, so to speak. But I was an operator, and I became an engineer, right? So it's almost like the Mustang of the oil field, right? Like, yeah. I worked as an operator and then worked my way up finished up my master's degree and became an engineer. And it's all about how you treat your guys. And it's not like, it's not like the military where it's like, you can get away with treating people like shit. You treat people like shit in the oil field and they don't like you, like they're going to cut your tires and then you can't go to work. And then you're going to get fired because you couldn't make it to work because your guys hate you. It's very cutthroat. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's extremely I ruthless, just, right? It's, it's reality, man. You know, it's connected to reality. Like the way that you describe it, I feel like the entire American economy should be set up like that. And then everything would be great because you know, there, there'd be people that can't hack it anywhere. But energy would be so uh, cheap and, and uh, you know, like consumer goods and like the, the economy would be doing so good that you could be there, there'd still be a place for you if you were like a, a sniveling little bitch. 
right? There's well, still be a place that... for you in that economy if if because it sets the incentives to cause people to grow and develop in a in a way that connects to the real world and real skills that that and map- that's ex- that's exactly what I capitalize on here now is that you learn amazing skills. Like I got my CDL license and I still have it today because you never know when world ends, I could still go drive a truck, right? Um, I know how to operate almost every piece of heavy equipment from 200 ton hydraulic cranes to front end loaders to bobcats and skid steers and everything else, right? And on top of that, uh, I have my engineering, you know, background with explosives. So I had an ATF level four license to build uh, explosives for downhole uh, operations. So you can go work in the mining industry or whatever else, you know, and then you learn welding and you and everything out there, you guys have to troubleshoot and fix yourself. So you have some mechanics like designated mechanics that can do the bigger stuff like on engine work. But for the most part, if a piece of equipment goes down, you and 10 guys got to figure out how to replace that belt, change the fluids out, get that thing back online troubleshoot the electronics. So the skills that I have learned in the past 10 years in the oil field are indispensable for the rest of my life. Like I built my own house, right? You know what I mean? Like I know how to fix my own cars. I know how to do everything. I know how to weld. There's nothing that I don't know how to do as a man now because I learned all those skills in the oil field, not the military. Right. And, um, and even now it's like, you you have a direct effect on your local economy. Like when our refinery had an explosion last year around this time, we had a pipe failure. Uh, we only we were at 50% reduced capacity for almost eight months. Well, gas was over like $4 a gallon for that entire period of time. But everyone at the refinery for the past year has been busting their ass to get everything back online. Now we're back at 100%. And now gas is back down to like 250 You know what I mean? So everything that you do every day matters. And it's people take it for granted. No one, if you don't work in that industry, Nobody cares. They just see the price on the gas station or the pump and whatever else. But like I said, you'll always have a job in almost every state you'd want to go to uh, if you get into the energy industry. Like I, all my friends back in New Jersey, a lot of them work for PSCNG gas, right? So they, they're they laying pipelines, they're plugging into houses. A lot of them are linemen working on the electrical lines, uh, doing excavation. So uh, one thing for men that are, are having that lost sense of purpose, and maybe the military is not for you, or you don't want to get stuck behind a desk all day go into the trades. Trades are a respectable skill to learn. And yeah, I'm smart. And my friends who work on Wall Street or work in the defense contracting industry make more money than I do, but they're miserable. They're miserable. Like you have to sit behind a desk all day and do this stuff. Like I love putting my hard hat on and going outside and and putting in the work and knowing that I contributed to the local economy and I made somebody's life better that day because their house has heat. Right. And at the end of the day, like once you start getting into the oil and gas structure, it's so much better for your quality of life as well. Like maybe in the upstream industry, like fracking is really hard being home, like we discussed in the beginning. But once you move your way up, like, you know, I moved into uh, processing and refining now, right? So my schedule, I work five days on, five days off. That's my base schedule, right? So I technically only work six months out of the year. And that doesn't include my vacation time or my army reserve time or anything else. So now I have a really good base pay. I, I have protected benefits. I have really transferable skills as an industrial wastewater specialist at that refinery where I hold a license to do those things. And on top of that, you know, now I can have a family and now I can go on vacations and I have the financial ability to do those things and run this podcast and be an advocate for people in the military who are still dealing with stuff. So one thing I love about the oil and gas industry is once you once you put your time in and you get those skills and you get those certifications, it opens up so much more opportunity for you to live a more faithful, true to life experience, you know, and really enjoy the world around you 
versus being sucked into this meat grinder uh, of industry or the bureaucratic system in, in the U.S. economy where you're so focused on whatever Donald Trump or Joe Biden says every day that that runs your life. I mean, I don't care. Like none of this stuff affects me. Like I have this I have this great life you know, with my hunting dog and my friends and my family, and I have an industry that has a direct impact and everything. And I have skills and I can do stuff, you know, and the oil and gas industry gave me all that opportunity, not the military. Right. And I'm still in the military now. And I do it for, you know, for, you know, ethical reasons, because I believe I can make a difference. But at the end of the day, the oil, I am so thankful for my experience at the Air Force Academy, because getting kicked out post-graduation, gave me the opportunity to start that career before any of my peers did. Cause now my peer group is starting to get out as majors or go into the airlines now. And they're starting their adult lives at 35. Well, I started my adult life at 24. Right. You know, and I put my, my, my green hat time in, so to speak. And now I live a very comfortable life that I can hopefully provide these experiences to other people and incentivize. But for men who are trying to find that purpose, I highly encourage you to go into the energy industry. So that whether that's refining upstream drilling, fracking, or even uh, power and and utility, right? Because us as a human society, we need those things. Those things are not going away. And really, there's some women in those positions, but at the end of the day, it's mostly men doing those jobs because no one's getting called out at two o'clock in the morning to go fix a gas pipeline at 2 a.m. But you are, you're the guy, you're the guy that's going to go do that. And that's kind of cool. Like, it's kind of cool that you, people respect you and trust you enough to go out and fix that. And although people take it for granted, it gives you that sense of accomplishment every day. Like there's never a day that when I go to work that I don't feel like we accomplished something for the local Denver metro area, right? And that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that is really awesome. The thing that jumped out at me and has got me intri- intrigued is uh, the idea that you were not sleeping for that period of time. It sounds like that industry maybe could use a little bit of a little <laughs> bit of H2F. I think there's yeah. opportunity there. <laughs> Like, like I, like I said, you got to put your time in your first two to three years in the energy industry. You got to cut your teeth. You got yeah, to, you got to learn. Even, it. even so the, like what, what portion of that is hazing just to make sure that, you know, you're legit versus actual demand and, and need for the job. So it's way and less than the military. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the military is way more hazing and just like, this is how it is. In the yeah. oil field, it's like if you can't pick up that heavy piece of pipe, people might point and laugh at you. But then 30 seconds later, everyone's running to come help you because we got a job to do and get this done. Like now. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? So Yeah. Yeah. And I just I don't know. Like I I feel like sleep's like this big thing where it, it really negatively impacts performance. Yep. And I feel like maybe these companies, um, you know, like it 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 could be something that could be invested in in a way that that works where they're trying to because i mean the, the idea that's like really hard like it, it drops your iq by a ton you know it makes it so that mm-hmm. you can't learn as fast and so it's like maybe they'd be able to get more out of people if they made subtle tweaks but um i agree with you and the, the most fatalities i saw in the oil field are because you guys falling asleep driving you know what i mean yeah. and dying a lot of people die that way um yeah i'm, I'm sure that's expensive not only uh, it, it is well, not only because they're paying out um you know in, in insurance claims or, or or whatnot but also you lose the skills because you got somebody that's i mean there's not a never-ending supply i mean they throw a lot of money at people and i think that's that's kind of what makes everything work mm-hmm. but um i don't know maybe it would involve some kind of change in structuring with more loyalty towards specific companies to 
where you know that's a a, a portion I don't know. That's that's all. That, I don't know. You just got me thinking. Yeah. That, now they have like like I think with a lot of things they mitigated that risk. Now they have designated drivers, right? So like there's a bus driver that takes people out to location versus you taking crew vans, right? So guys can sleep and not have to worry about driving anymore for the most part. That's one big safety thing they changed. Um, but yeah, it's it just depends on these locations, man. When you got to go out to an austere environment, you got to work a twelve hour shift, but it takes you two hours each way to get there from the man camp in Texas. You know, that's a, that's a 14, 16 hour a day, you know yeah. what I mean? And it's, and it's hard to keep up on a good fitness routine and eating right all the time. Cause most of these places are double wide trailer chow halls. Right. You know, so yeah. it, it definitely has an effect. If you work <clears throat> on the bottom jobs, like working in fracking and, and uh, drilling and stuff like that, it is what it is. Um, like I said, it's, it's tough. Like it's, it's, it's one of those reasons where you're operating in a remote environment and it's, it is hard. It's not easy. Uh, but that's why I encourage you guys like do it for a couple of years, you know, learn, learn the basics and then start moving your way up to midstream processing and, and everything else. There's always going to be opportunity for you if you're willing to swing a hammer and tie your steel toe boots up. Right. That's so. awesome. So well, talk Ukraine, Russia. And oh man. Your, your perspective on that to close us out. So, yeah, uh, and we, so I was over there for the invasion, right? So we were working in CENTCOM when all this stuff was happening. We were watching everything going and I'll talk about what I can talk about, obviously. Uh, but as an oil and gas guy, my analysis of the entire situation was extremely different from everyone else's. Everyone's like, oh my God, the Russians are massing and they're going to start blowing people up. And this is about freedom and democracy. And I was like, nope, has nothing to do with any of this stuff. So let's just do some historical context on this. One, uh, that has been part of Russia for a very, very, very long time. It wasn't basically until the fall of the USSR that Ukraine really become its own separate entity. And at the end of the day, it's been run by a Russian puppet government, like every other satellite Eastern Bloc country. Uh, and then what people don't even understand is in 2014, there was something called the Orange Revolution, where the Americans and the CIA went in there, overthrew the Russian puppet government, and we put our own westernized democracy-controlled democracy government in power. That really pissed off the Russians, right? Because what people don't understand about Ukraine, Ukraine is like the Texas of, of Europe, okay? They have a massive agricultural base a massive energy base, and they have access to warm water ports, right? That is huge for food, water, and power access, right? Which what we, what we discussed. Another thing people don't understand is that Ukraine at the time supplied 80% of the grain to the Middle East, right? So countries like Kuwait, UAE, Qatar, Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, all rely on food supply from Ukraine directly. A lot of that has been shifting towards India now, right? Making these Indian partnerships as well for food supply. But for the most part, a lot of their grain came from Ukraine, went through the Bosphorus Straits. They docked at the port of Tardis in Syria, and then all the food was distributed to there. So with the lack of grain coming out of Ukraine now, it's caused massive famine risk issues in countries like Syria and Sudan and all these other places, which you're seeing, you know, get put on the back burner because no one's paying attention to it. On top of that, Bruce Mont Oil and Gas Company, right? And I will, I will, people understand the name I'm trying to say. I just can't say it because of my position, right? Um, there was a certain person who was put on a board for the Burisma Oil and Gas Company back at that time, right? And there was a reason, right? 
we needed to be able to control the energy coming out of Ukraine and make deals with them because we didn't want to reduce our own supply by using our own supplies, supplier Western allies in Europe, right? Because a lot of the energy that came out of Ukraine gets dispersed to Africa, gets dispersed to England and all these other places, right? So we have a good place where we can control the narrative of energy supply from Ukraine very easily using shipping transports and everything else with our massive oil and gas industry and then distribute it to our partners, right? So that's how the US maintains its influence overseas is who controls the food supply to the Middle East, who controls the energy supply outside of OPEC, right? We don't we don't control OPEC. So we have to find other areas to influence oil and gas supply outside of OPEC. One of those areas is Ukraine. So there is a reason that there's this specific individual was put on a board for the Burisma oil and gas company in Ukraine during that time, um, which has become so just a- to, Just to interject- Sure. Um, there's a, you know who Mike Benz is? Not off the top of my head, no. So Mike Benz is a, he worked in the State Department a little bit during the Trump administration, but he's a huge online freedom fighter, essentially against censorship. So he's like the, the one of the key figures exposing the censorship industrial complex. So CISA and um, you know, Missouri v. Biden uh, mm-hmm. with the, uh, you know, FBI and CIA coordinating with these government cutouts and the Stanford Internet, you know, research. Uh, they, you know, they call it researchers and, and stuff. But one of the big topics that he brings up is kind of the the natural gas mob, like the Bush dynasty natural gas mafia, and that having some sort of role with that control from your the angle that you're talking about with and i'll I'll say you know hunter biden um and then uh that allowing gas out of texas controlled by kind of bush dynasty folks halbert etc to be sold at at huge markups in europe uh Mm -hmm. because of that relationship so i just wanted to say it's it's not a uh this is a bipartisan <laughs> it's a bipartisan issue there's not just you know there's there's these different factions and, and energy in general is bipartisan right it, yeah it, it is but it's yeah, whoever... a, yeah I, I just wanted to point out that um we'll see first of all see if you had heard anything about that and then uh also just point out that there's that there's these different factions and some of them are um yeah, like the, the the Hunter Biden, et cetera, that that is part of one faction. And, you know, they're aligned with the, the Bush faction mm-hmm. in order to essentially profit in all these different ways. Correct. Whoever controls the energy and controls the money controls the influence in the regions that it's being dispersed throughout. Right. And that's why OPEC holds so much power in general, too. Like Qatar is the largest liquid natural gas uh, exporter in the world. Right. And they do that for a reason because they need it. So how do they try to fish themselves out of the market is, you know, it's easier to get energy from Ukraine, though, than it is to get it from Qatar or Venezuela, right, or the US, you know, it's a, it's a shorter distance to travel, so to speak, right. And Russia also has a major energy enterprise, right. One of the main reasons that Russia did what they did, and this is my opinion, this is just from my analysis and what I've watched, is because they knew they had an opportunity where they wouldn't be stopped, right. Under the current administration, they knew that there was not they weren't going to do anything. Uh, the previous administration, different, different story, right? 
Putin has tried to propagate, like bringing back the greatness of the USSR and bringing everybody back together because he sees the US and its ideology, especially when it comes to political or transgender ideology and all these and religious, uh, anti-religious ideology as a threat to their culture. And I think that's one thing Americans don't understand is like, yeah, we have our own culture. We have our own system of government and religious beliefs and everything else. And that's awesome. But so do other people. Right. And Russian, the Russian Orthodox Church controls a lot of the things that Putin does uh, and his behaviors as well. And what people don't understand about Russians, and like I grew up with a lot of Russians, I'm from New Jersey, right, is that they really respect their culture, but they're also a very stoic and very hard people. Like they don't care that they don't have a hundred choices of yogurt at the grocery store. Like as long as they have yogurt, like a yogurt, if there's one brand of yogurt, then then the, the Russian government is doing everything it can for the for the Russian people because, you know, Bratislava, whatever, right? So from Euro trip reference, right? So it's Americans aren't used to that. Americans are like, I want a hundred choices of everything. And if I don't have that, our economy is failing and I need to overthrow the government. The Russians are like, yeah, we've been through way worse, man. We lost like 18 million people in World War II and we don't care. So Russians are very used to being isolated. They're used to being self-productive. Like you could shut off the entire country of Russia to the outside world and it doesn't matter because they can still produce their own metals. They can produce their own timber. They can produce their own oil and gas. They technically don't need the world if they don't have to. And Putin has emphasized that through that their entire uh, sanction process. Like, go ahead, sanction us. What are you going to do? Oh, man, you're going to you're going to bring us back to what you did in the Cold War. And we still survived it anyway. You know, even though we broke up economically because we you outspent this with the space race and everything else in general, like Russia still survived. The Russian, you know, oligarchs, you know, still survived. And that environment still exists today. The way they look at it, especially with having a Sino-China alliance out there, right, which is basically their version of like, we can use them as like our Amazon, right? Like we can use all our natural resources here in Russia, uh, do partnerships with China, and then they'll Amazon everything out of our country because they don't care about sanctions. They'll do whatever they want. So then they started working with Iran overseas too. So the funny thing was, is that the Russians, even though we had all these sanctions against the Russians from oil and gas, everything else, it actually increased their profit margin because now they can undersell through China, through Iran, and it didn't matter. They're actually, the Russian government is actually making money off of the war in Ukraine, not losing money. And, and there's a lot of people who sit there and fight me on that going like, oh, that's not true. I did this analysis and CNN did this. I'm just like, then how are they still fighting? If they were going to run out of money and they were going to run out of tanks and they're going to run out of equipment, they should have done that a long time ago, according to your analysis. But I even said within the first two weeks, I'm just like, if we didn't immediately intervene with javelins and guys on the ground the way we did, the Russians, I mean, the Russians were in Kiev in less than 30 days, right? And it was because of direct American intervention, you know, on the on the dark side that they weren't able to do that. So the Russians have resulted to their traditional infantry tactics, which are very different than American tactics, right? They are just going to bleed them and they're going to bleed them so long that the world stops caring until something else takes prevalence. And lucky for Russia, Israel and the whole Palestine Gaza situation kicked off. No one's talking about Ukraine anymore. No one's talking about Russia. And they're still, you know, it's a funny thing. I always talk about their surface to air defense systems, everything else in Ukraine, how great they are, but they haven't shot down a single bomber. Not one TU-95, nothing. Not one Tupelo-142, nothing. They sh- and they stopped you know, losing their fighter jets as well uh, because now everything's just integrated drone World War One warfare, right? So the Ukrainians eventually are going to run out of resources. Like even Zelensky had a very hard time last week trying to convince another X amount of billions of dollars to be sent to his country. I mean, Zelensky literally went on the news and told Americans to stop crying and give me your money with no end state, right? So- this is exactly what Putin wants. 
This is exactly what he planned for. He's just like, yeah, you know, we might only have one choice of yogurt still, but they're still losing and no one. And now, now they're not going to give them money. This is exactly what they want. My estimate is that it's going to end up at least in them giving up the Don Tox and uh, Luthanx region on the Eastern side, because they're going to bleed Ukraine drive its money and resources and its men. Right. And that's what they did in um, Chechnya. Right. People go back, like, Go to 2000. Look what Putin did to Chechnya. The Chechen government didn't want to agree with the Russians. He went in there and completely obliterated everything in there, put so many bombs and chemical weapons into the ground that it poisoned their water table to anything above 800 feet for the next 2000 years. Okay. If you don't think that Putin is capable of doing that to Ukraine, you're wrong. But always, so people always argue that, oh, he's going to be a psychopath. He's going to set off nukes. He's going to do all these. No, he's not. No, he's not. Because one, they already dealt with Chernobyl. They don't want to deal with that shit again. And two, it's such a land of vast resources that they need. The Russian Navy wants access to Odessa and those warm water ports for their submarine fleets and their black fleets, right? Their black sea fleets. They want the access to the oil and gas transport so they can expand their energy influence empire and take over the influence that the United States once controlled in Ukraine, right? And they also want to take control of the food supply. Like I said, whoever has the most access to food, power, and water holds the power in the region, Russia knows that Ukraine is a massive powerhouse for those three things. And if they can control that, then they will continue to reduce Western influence in Europe, which is exactly what they want. Because like I said, there's no way in hell that we'd ever allow Russia to park nuclear missiles in Mexico. And I don't want to understand why people are so surprised uh, when they get all pissed off that we park nuclear missiles and you know all these other countries that are on their border as well. And even though we might not be a direct threat, like it's unrealistic to think about us going to nuclear war with Russia at any point in time, despite what all the warmongers are going to say. Putin is looking out for the future of his country, what's important to maintaining his Russian culture and their faith and what's important to them. And it's just not Western ideology. And Americans have to be understand that to accept that. You know what? If they want to be communist, Marxist, and whatever else, okay, that's how they are. Are you going to go, are you going to go change uh, Saudi Arabia and make them a democracy too? No, we're not. But they provide us oil and trading resources so we don't fuck with them, even though they have massive human rights violations, right? People think that this is like a war of good versus evil. Like this is a World War II situation. It is not. The, the entire Russian-Ukraine conflict is strictly over the control of resources and maintaining influence in those direct neighboring countries to reduce the American influencing power in the region. And Putin's doing a very good job at that, despite what people are going to say. And he will drag this out for five to 10 years, unless somebody goes in and assassinates them. And there's another like Bolshevik revolution type situation, right? Which I don't, I don't see that happening either. Um, and yeah, the Russian people are struggling and they're suffering and things aren't going as well as they want to, but they're also used to this. Their grandparents and their parents grew up in this type of environment. They're like, well, it's our turn. It's our turn to be the stoic Russians with one, you know, container of yogurt. Um, and they're willing to do it. Like if there was such a massive opposition to what the Russians were doing, yeah, uh, the Russian people probably would have stopped it by now. And people always say, "Well, well, the Russian government is extremely overpowering, and you'll just your family will disappear in the middle of the night." Yeah, there's elements of that. Like he 100% shot down, uh, <laughs> you know, the Wagner Group guy in his plane, but he made a statement like, "Anyone else want to fuck with me?" No, we're going to keep going. But there's actually a resurgence of patriotism in Russia now because they're seeing that they're still alive. They're still they're still doing these things, and it's not the greatest situation ever. But Putin goes, "Well, what's the alternative? Do you want?" I mean. People should look up the the commercial he put out last year for Christmas. It was absolutely. Have you heard about this? It's the one on the plane. No. So Putin, it's called Putin Christmas or whatever. 
and Putin dresses up as Santa Claus and he goes into an American house, right? As Santa Claus. And he sees all these pictures of gay couples and trans lesbian uh, LGBTQ propaganda all over the house, right? And these kids have no toys or anything like that. So Putin goes in and he like puts a picture frame up of an actual mom and dad. He takes away all the rainbow stuff and puts like guns and like a, a football and a soccer ball on the ground. And then he like tucks the kid in at night and the kid's like, thank you, Santa. And then magically the next morning, the kid's not gay and his entire family's back to being conservative Russian Orthodox. Like that was a, a commercial they put out uh, in Russia last year to say, if we don't do this, this is what America is going to turn our country into. And this is why we're fighting in Ukraine. And there's a lot of conservative Russian Orthodox you know, people in Russia, and they're not disagreeing with that. They they honestly believe that if we allow Ukraine, if they allow Ukraine to win and they allow Western influence, that they're going to turn all their kids gay and take away their religion, and take away what what it means. That look what's happening in America. There's they're cutting off the appendages of children. They're putting them on transgender drugs. Do you want that here in Russia? Like that's Putin's argument to his population to gain support, and it's working. It's working. And, you know, yeah, we talk. I, no, I, I think definitely like the, the narrative of uh, Putin versus Globo Homo, like he's done a good job of selling that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But I, I, I would like to point out, too, I mean, somebody that I read a lot is a friend of mine has a has a sub stack that like is really probably the only thing that I read related to this. And um he makes the a point that I think is pretty persuasive because he called the Pergozin thing way early on that that was going to go hundred percent going to happen exact way that it went down. And his his point is that you know the MOD and Shoigu is is just every bit as corrupt as our deep state. So like Russia absolutely deep state. Yep, and that they have to contend with, and so it's mm-hmm. like. All the narratives again, and but like same thing that it always comes down to, which is the you know food, water, and uh, and energy. I say we leave it off at that, man. I I really appreciate the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from my perspective, you're you're a paragon uh, of humanity in in the American people, dude. Like you're you're an absolute force. I'm uh, you know just humbled to 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 get to chat with you like i'm just really i'm blown away i was blown away when i saw you talking to sam and just getting getting the chance to to talk with you and and get your perspectives on stuff um like the the path that you've cut and what you've been able to accomplish like i'm looking forward to seeing what you're able to continue to accomplish and you know i mean i I feel like we're in the same fight together and um you know I, i look forward to trying to fight with you along the same lines trying to get accountability and uh trying to you know fulfill our oaths to the constitution essentially because i feel like that's what we're doing um by trying to engage in this manner yeah well i appreciate the conversation thanks for bringing me on grant and helping me tell my story and having these great you know important discussions that need to be had uh for american society and our american military now and uh you know let's, let's do it again you know anytime just let me know Absolutely. I'll put the uh, links to a bunch of stuff, including your podcast in the description. Um, and then also the, the episode that you did with Sam, because we referenced it a couple of times. And then, you know, just to reiterate uh, the, the, you know, your big focus on sexual assault, which is a huge issue. And you'll, you'll get to hear more about that if you go uh, 
looking up uh, Adam and, and more of the story. So thanks, Adam. And yep, uh, thanks, yeah, do this again sometime. All right.